Um, well, will you all please pray with me as we open up Genesis 6? Father in heaven, we just want to thank you for your word and for the treasures of your word. And would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open to us your treasures this morning? Lord, would you speak to our souls this morning? Lord, would your Holy Spirit remind us of your glory this morning? Lord, would we stand in awe of you, knowing that you're the only judge this morning? Lord, would you show us the glories of the gospel, things that angels long to look into this morning? Lord, show us your son Jesus through your word here in Genesis and reveal new mysteries to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, you may know that uh, we've been going through this series uh, on uh, the first few chapters in Genesis, the early chapters in Genesis. And um, the story of Noah's Ark is one of the most iconic in all of Scripture. And uh, as we'll see in future weeks, it's actually a historic event that's referenced by several other cultures of the ancient Near East. Many of us grew up hearing about Noah's Ark in children's Bibles before we could even walk, or we had our Sunday school classes decorated with images of cute animals walking two by two, and there have even been several Hollywood adaptations of Noah's Ark in recent years. But as familiar as we think this story is, it's easy for us to be content to know just the general outline of the story, Noah and the Ark and the animals and the flood and to miss the details and the deeper truths of God's word. So for the next three weeks, we're going to dig into this ancient story and explore the sweeping biblical themes, themes like sin and judgment, grace and covenant, decreation and recreation, and also many prophetic foreshadowings of Christ. The actual account of Noah we find in Genesis chapter 6 through 9 is by far the longest story in the earliest chapters of Genesis. So by way of emphasis, we know that it must be important. This morning, we're going to focus just on the intro to the story in Genesis 6. So if you please grab a Bible and turn with me there or open up a Bible app on your phone and have Genesis 6 open. Now, this chapter focuses on the cause of the flood and on the unique rescue plan on both God's judgment and on God's salvation. And what we find right away in Genesis 6 with this stuff about the sons of God breeding with the daughters of men in verse 2 and of the Nephilim in verse 4 is that this is actually one of the most mysterious passages in all of Scripture. There are questions in this passage um, that are never fully answered in all of the rest of the Bible. Questions that rabbis and scholars have been debate, debating for thousands of years. And sometimes I think God intentionally puts these mysteries into his word because he knows it will incite our curiosity and cause us to really press in. These are fun questions to research and wrestle with, and we'll definitely take a few minutes to talk about them here. On the one hand, I've shared with you before the wise warnings of my old mentor, but it bears repeating. He said, when it comes to the Bible, never throw away what you do know 
for what you don't know. Never throw away what you do know for what you don't know. So this morning, I will briefly discuss these three things. I want to discuss three things that we don't really know, but I'll spend the majority of our time on three things that we do know, which not surprisingly are the most important parts of the story. But let's start with the mysteries, all right? With the three things that we don't know, or at least with what we can't know for sure. The first thing we don't know is the identity of the sons of God. Verses one and two says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, the enticement of the forbidden relationship here recalls Eve's reaction to the forbidden fruit in Genesis 3, 6, almost word for word. So like Eve, the sons of God saw they were attracted and they took, right? Um, but who were these sons of God? Were they uh, angels who were unlawfully breeding with women, as the early church fathers suggest? Were they powerful human judges who were abusing their position, as the early rabbis suggest? Or was it the line of Seth unlawfully marrying the line of Cain? Regardless of what we think, many interpreters suggest that there's a warning here for later Israelite kings against the pagan practice of harems and concubines. Or there's a warning to all Israelite men not to marry outside of the covenant. As Christians, we might take it as a warning repeated several times in the New Testament not to marry unbelievers, not to be unequally yoked, as the scriptures say. But whatever is going on in verse 2, it's clear that God is not pleased by his response in verse 3. It says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And here we arrive at another mystery, the second thing we don't know from this passage. It's clear that this verse is a pronouncement of divine judgment, but when it comes to the 120 years, is that referring to some kind of like countdown until the flood, or is it referring to a limitation he'll put on the span of human life for this time forward? Now, I've always thought it was the second option, a limitation on human lifespan, since it's clearly the case that after this time, the lifespan of biblical characters is drastically reduced, and perhaps significantly, Moses lived exactly 120 years. On the other hand, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, three out of the four main characters in the rest of Genesis, all lived longer than 120 years. So perhaps the other view has something going for it. A third mystery in this passage is the identity of the Nephilim in verse 4. Are they the unnatural spawn of the sons of God and the daughters of man from verse 2? Are they giants, as the earliest Greek translators suggest, perhaps pointing us to the only other use of this word found in all of the Bible, Numbers 13, 33, uh, where the unfaithful Israelite spies give a fearful report of the promised land saying, we saw the Nephilim and we seemed ourselves like grasshoppers and so we seem to them. Or are the Nephilim actually heroes to be identified with the mighty men of renown that we find at the end of verse four. 
Unfortunately, these questions have remained unresolved for thousands of years, and I don't think we're going to solve them this morning, but they're fun to wrestle with nevertheless. As I've said, sometimes I think God puts these mysteries into his word because he knows that he'll incite our curiosity and cause us to press in. But as we leave behind these mysteries of verses one through four, all that we don't know, we arrive at the heart of the passage in verses five through eight, and three things that we can know, three biblical principles that we find in Genesis six that are established, they become important principles throughout the rest of scripture. Verse five sets forth the sad and perverse status of man in one fell swoop. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, this is perhaps the worst and most universal indictment of human wickedness in the entire Bible. And it's actually crucial background information for understanding God's decision to send a flood upon the whole earth. In fact, verse 6 goes so far as to say that the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And this brings us to our first biblical principle, that human sin impacts the heart of God. Now, this might sound strange to us, especially because God knows the future and he knew that we would sin, but this is a firm principle in scripture. Somehow God also coasts along with us with our timeline as well, and our sin impacts the heart of God. Think of Jesus prophetically weeping over Jerusalem. Think of Paul's exhortation to the Ephesians not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And in this passage, note the contrast between the softness of God's heart in verse 6 and the hardness of man's heart in verse 5. It says of man in verse 5 that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, I think it's important for us to know that we can still grieve God's heart today. That's why Jesus focused so much on the human heart when he taught the people. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. He said that anger in our hearts is the root of murder. He said that lust in our hearts is the root of adultery. He said that judging others in our hearts will lead to our own harsher judgment. On the last day. And what does it mean that we can grieve God to his heart except that we were meant for so much more than this? That our Heavenly Father expected more from his children, and like an abandoned parent, he is heartbroken that we have gone astray. And that in using our great gifts of intelligence and creativity and freedom that he so lavished upon us in creation and using these things for our own wicked ends, we did not become more human, but instead became less and less of what we were made to be. We dehumanized ourselves through sin. So this is the first principle we learn, that human sin impacts the heart of God. And the second is related. That our sin brings about the just wrath of God. Verse 7 says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry I made them. 
In other words, God is not simply a grieving father. He's also a just judge. And we must not miss this most basic point in Genesis 6, that the flood was God's judgment on universal human wickedness. Now, that may sound harsh to modern ears. We don't like this idea of God judging us. In fact, we read the Bible as if we're casting judgment on God. Like, um, if, the, if I don't really like the next thing I read, or if I don't like what God does here or there, you're not going to get to be my God anymore, right? So we've turned the tables. We think we're judging God, but the scriptures and God's ancient people understood it differently. We must remember that God's judgment of what is evil is part of his protection of what is good. They're two sides of the same coin. In this sense, God's wrath is even related to God's love. As anyone who's ever attended a poorly run school knows, where there are no real consequences and no restraints, if you allow bullies to run amok, there is soon no room for peace and for goodness. And as we look at the elaborations upon human evil in verses 11 through 13, we notice two times that there's a special emphasis given to the sin of violence in particular. And God wants to end the violence. Now we might ask, well, what about the people who weren't violent? What about the people who weren't evil? Will God sweep away the righteous along with the wicked? Now, you may know that this very question, word for word, is what Abraham poses to God in Genesis 18, verse 23, when he's interceding for Sodom. And God answers, if I find in Sodom even 10 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. So God is willing to spare the many for the sake of the few. But as we see here in Genesis 6, God's mercy extends even further than that. All right, so this morning we've delved into some mysteries, into some things that we don't know, like the identity of the sons of God, the meaning of the 120 years, the identity of the Nephilim. And we've also talked about things that we do know, that human sin impacts the heart of God, that our sin brings about his just wrath. And now finally we come to the third and most important and most glorious biblical principle established in this passage, which is that God is willing to spare the entire human race for the sake of one. Through one righteous person, God saves the entire world. This is really what the story of Noah's Ark is all about. After all, the words of judgment and woe, verse 8 gives us this first hint of a final solution. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The Hebrew word hain, translated here as favor, literally means grace or unmerited favor. So the salvation of the human race and of the animals and of the trees and all creation begins with the unmerited grace of God. Now, where have we heard this before? In the gospel of Jesus Christ, of course. In fact, sometimes the good news is even called the gospel of grace in the New Testament. Verse 9 goes on to introduce another gospel theme, stating that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And this brief description bears itself out in the story where time and time again, Noah does 
all that God commanded, commanded him, word for word. So in Noah, humanity gets a fresh start to be who they, who they were always supposed to be. As Walter Brueggemann puts it, Noah is the fully responsive man who accepts creatureliness and lets God be God. Therefore, God establishes a covenant with Noah in verse 18. And this introduces the crucial biblical theme that the righteousness of one man could lead to the salvation of the whole human race. These gospel themes of grace and righteousness and covenant are front and center in Genesis 6. What the story of Noah's Ark teaches us is that though human beings were sinful and under judgment, God offered grace and salvation to the human race through his covenant with one righteous man. Now, as I draw to a close this morning, I, I just wonder if we understand today that our sin grieves the heart of God and that our sin deserves the just judgment of God. If you, if you remember the, the lyrics to the, to the song, In Christ Alone, it says, Till on the cross, when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. I remember one time I was uh, in a conversation with some of my friends at seminary at the, ta uh, at, at the lunch table. And, uh, and one person said, you know, I wish, I don't, I don't really like that, that language, that the, that the wrath of God was satisfied. I prefer that it say that on the cross, when Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And I thought... Oh, well, that's actually pretty good too, right? Because on the cross, when Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. But then uh, somebody at the table answered, uh, asked a snarky question. He says, yeah, but, but how was the love of God magnified? And then everybody at the table said at the same time, because the wrath of God was satisfied, right? So on the cross, when Jesus died, all his wrath, all his judgment upon the human race, he bore in his own innocent person. And for that reason, on the cross, the love of God was magnified because through this one righteous man, salvation was offered to all who would enter into covenant with him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.